The first time my family and I tried to cross the border into the United States, we got caught. It's been a while, and my memories are a little hazy. But here's what I remember. La Migra found me, my mom, and my older sister and baby brother. They asked our names and ages. I told them I was 11 years old, and they laughed at me. Now, I was pretty tall for an 11-year-old. It turns out that they thought I was lying about my age. They put us in their truck and drove us down to a small building with little cells, some sort of holding facility. They took my mom's fingerprints. We were there for a few hours. But eventually, they released us into Mexico. I don't remember a lot of specifics about those agents. They weren't violent or anything, but I do remember they were jerks. But I crossed the border in 1998, three years before 9-11. For people who crossed the border after, things were really different. After the attacks, CVP hired thousands of new agents, really quickly. But they didn't do a good job of screening the applicants. In some cases, CVP actually hired cartel members. But those cartel members, they weren't the only ones who had no business getting a gun and badge. In the mid-2000s, a CVP agent was arrested almost every single day for misconduct or criminal conduct. That's five times more than any other law enforcement agency in the country. Those were the same people who were sent to the border with minimal oversight and told to protect their country from immigrants. This is Homeland Insecurity, a podcast about how immigrants like me became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. In the last episode, we heard the story of how 9-11 stopped immigration reform on its tracks and how the attacks justified the creation of DHS, a giant agency designed to protect us against terror that would instead become best known for persecuting immigrants. For the rest of this series, I'm going to tell you about how that happened, how linking immigration and national security set the stage for the terrible treatment of immigrants that we see today. In this episode, we're going to tell you the story of an agency that grew too fast after 9-11 and the consequences that this hiring boom had for immigrants. From the beginning, CVP had one of the largest budgets of any agency within DHS. Over the years, it received more than 20% of the department's total funding. And its top priority was using that money to, quote, secure the border against terrorists and their weapons. As we talked about in the last episode, the Bush administration thought of the border as a major security problem after 9-11. There were just a lot of places no one was watching. Along the northern border with Canada, 4,000 miles long, half of all official border crossings before 9-11 were left unmanned and unguarded overnight. This is Garrett Graff. He's a journalist who writes about national security. Before 9-11, Border Patrol was a pretty small agency. There were just over 9,000 agents patrolling 8,000 miles of border. For comparison, the New York Police Department has 36,000 officers. That is not a secure border. Um, and that was sort of the thing that people woke up to in the wake of 9-11 was that that needed to change. 
You'll remember that none of the 9-11 hijackers came to the U.S. illegally. They all had visas and arrived at airports. But after the attacks, there was suddenly a fear that terrorists might sneak across the border or that they might try to bring a bomb. Al-Qaeda had actually tried that once before. An Al-Qaeda operative in uh, 1999 who was stopped in Washington state on his way to what we now understand was blow up uh, LAX, the Los Angeles airport, as part of what was then known as the Millennium Plot. So it wasn't totally crazy to think that a terrorist group might try that again. I mean, this was known to Al-Qaeda that this is a vulnerability. This is Robert Bonner again. We met him in the last episode. He was the first commissioner of the new CBP. I mean, usually when the Mexican coyotes, the human smuggling organizations that are based in Mexico, you know, they usually were bringing 50 people at a time across their border. They knew how to evade the border patrol. So it was a national security vulnerability, both the Mexican and Canadian border between the ports of entry. I should say, There's absolutely no evidence any terrorist has ever snuck into the country this way. There's actually good reason to believe that Mexican cartels actively try not to work with terrorists. They don't want the extra attention. But to Bonner, the threat of someone sneaking across the border was a reason for all kinds of new security measures, mainly new surveillance technology and a whole lot of new border patrol agents. Because um, if Al-Qaeda believes that there's a good chance that its terrorist operatives are going to be apprehended, it will not exploit that vulnerability. At the time, around a million people per year were picked up crossing the border illegally. But almost all of them were coming through the southern border. And so that's where CBP focused most of its attention. Now, it's true, most people that are going to be illegally trying to enter our house, our country, are economic migrants. They were then, they still are. Uh, but we needed to improve our chances of apprehending. Bonner has President Bush to approve hiring over 10,000 agents, effectively doubling the size of the Border Patrol. It was a decision that would have lasting consequences. CBP was about to become the largest federal law enforcement agency in the country, almost twice the size of the FBI. Bonner wanted to step up slowly over a number of years, He was worried that hiring too quickly would lead to major problems. But the White House was in a hurry. They asked him to do it in just two years. I think a compromise was reached, if I remember, in about four years. So we were going to add roughly 2,500 new Border Patrol agents a year on the base of the Border Patrol. Huge challenge. But finding the money was not a challenge. In the years following 9-11, Any bill with terrorism in the name was pretty sure to pass. Bonner's plan to hire more agents ended up in a bill called the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. It called for CBP to hire at least 2,000 agents a year between 2006 and 2010. President Bush signed it in December 2004. We have strengthened the security of our nation's borders and ports of entry and transportation systems. The bill I signed today continues the essential reorganization of our government. The bill put resources behind Bonner's plan to secure the border from terrorist threats. Lots and lots of resources. Enough to build a small army. But Garrett Graff wonders if an army is actually what we needed. We have probably actually over-invested in border security for the threat that we actually face. And, and I place an emphasis on 
the threat because when you begin to break down the rhetoric around border security, um, so much of it is couched in national security implications, terrorist uh, implications. And when you get right down to it, sort of most of it actually ends up being about illegal immigration. And that is not the way that these expenses uh, were justified at the time, but it's the way that they have ended up being spent. Basically, money to fight terrorism and to protect American people really ended up being spent on immigration enforcement. Looking back at all this now, it seems crazy to me that the U.S. put so many resources towards defending against an imaginary threat, immigrants. But this year, COVID-19, the biggest crisis the modern world has ever seen, has revealed a disturbing truth. The enormous inefficient system, one that was allegedly built to protect us, was pointed in the wrong direction. Instead, we have DHS and all of its oversized agencies, including CBP. Customs and Border Protection is the largest law enforcement agency in the country. We spend more money on it than the budgets of the FBI, ATF, Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, DEA, and the NYPD combined. That money pays for an army of agents and technology fit for a war. A war that's waged not against terrorism, not against legitimate threats like the coronavirus. Instead, we bought a war against immigrants. I think the challenge that the Border Patrol faces is that after 9-11, we went out and recruited Rambo when what we mostly turn out to have needed along the southern border specifically is Mother Teresa. Becoming the largest law enforcement agency was a bad start. But just as Bonner feared, CVP was also about to become the most corrupt. My name is Luz Varela, and I am currently a legal assistant at Raices Children's Program. My job consists of helping the children who arrive to the border, and they get detained, and they get sent to a shelter. I talk to them about their rights, what's to come for them in terms of legal, and then we do an intake to see if they qualify for a legal relief here in the United States, so a visa. We deal with a lot of children that come from very rough places, a life of violence, from poverty, from traumas, and then they they come in a journey that is really dangerous for them. And so when they arrive, they have no trust for us. But once we are able to build that trust with them and that relationship, it becomes so fulfilling to us and, and very important to them to have someone that they can trust. We want to help people that want a better life. And that's the only thing that we care about. The best way to support this work is to donate to Raices. Visit homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. It's common knowledge in law enforcement that hiring too fast leads to bad things. That basically, the more people you hire, and the faster you hire them, the lower your standards will go. But at least on paper, CVP had a plan for dealing with that risk. And a big part of that plan was James Tomchuk. I'm James Tomchuk, uh, the former Assistant Commissioner of Internal Affairs at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Internal Affairs is usually the department that investigates things like corruption and misconduct. 
Tomshak joined CBP right at the beginning of the hiring search in 2006. He came in with an impressive resume. He had spent more than 30 years in law enforcement, first as a cop, then as a Secret Service agent. But Tomshak realized pretty quickly he had signed up for a nearly impossible job. When he arrived, his office had fewer than 10 investigators to keep an agency of almost 30,000 people in line. Not only that, Tomshak didn't actually have the authority to investigate criminal conduct by agents. Because of how CBP was set up under DHS, he had to rely on other departments for that. And those departments had other priorities, which was a problem. Because pretty early on, Tomshak realized there was a lot of criminal behavior to investigate. Nothing I had seen or experienced in law enforcement compared to the integrity problems existing within the ranks of CBP. There was one particular case that really opened Tomshak's eyes. He learned about it soon after getting to CBP, and it really shocked him. A quick warning. This is a story about sexual assault. If you don't want to hear that, just keep ahead about a minute. The case involved a scenario where a female Border Patrol trainee had been made to consume excessive amounts of alcohol and then participate in a sex game that was very disturbing, uh, disgusting is maybe the more appropriate description, wherein she would position herself under a table where several senior Border Patrol agents or supervisors sat at the table exposing themselves. She then would engage in oral sex with all of the persons sitting at the table at various different times and afterwards became unconscious due to alcohol consumption. She then was forcibly raped by several persons present. I'm disgusted by so many things in that story. But let me just say this again, in case you missed it. Those were senior Border Patrol agents, supervisors, people in charge. Making matters worse, they were never punished. Tomshak couldn't believe it. That's when he started to think CBP's problems went deeper than a few bad agents. An agency willing to overlook them represented something much deeper. What I came to realize was the Border Patrol response to that incident was consistent with a pattern and practice of trying to project an image of high integrity and dismiss the reality of significant integrity problems that existed from within the organization. In other words, there was a culture of covering up bad behavior. And that worried a lot of people, including Tomshuk. Because Border Patrol agents spend a lot of time out in the field, out patrolling the border. And out there, there's no one looking over their shoulder. One former DHS official compared it to the attitude of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That was already the culture of CVP, even before the hiring search. But the problem was about to get a lot worse as thousands of new agents flooded in. Here's Gary Graff again. Largely because what they did in order to speed the growth was lower and forego hiring standards and hiring checks that 
are a routine and important part of law enforcement hiring. Kraft has done a lot of reporting on corruption and misconduct within CBP and on its connection to the hiring search Congress approved in 2004. That there was sort of this mentality that any body on the border was better than nobody on the border. And that they lowered the training standards for the Border Patrol uh, going through the Border Patrol Academy. They sent new agents out into the field without taking the time to finish background checks. Basically, CBP hired a lot of people who probably wouldn't have been hired at a local police department or another federal agency, and then sent them into the field without enough supervision. They grew the agency so quickly that there weren't sufficient senior experienced agents in the field to train the newcomers. And eventually, there was rampant crime and misconduct within the ranks of the Border Patrol. And most of the people who suffered as a result were immigrants. My name is Christian Sanchez. I'm a staff attorney for Raices at the San Antonio office. Right now, I'm representing a group of transgender women who are detained at Pearsall, and they are fighting their asylum claims. These women are the most vulnerable clients that we have who are suffering a lot of abuse and violence in their home countries. They come from places where transgender women can just be killed in the street and nothing happens and nobody cares. We've been able to win over 15 asylum cases for these women and that allows them to build a life in a way that they've never been able to before. Our work depends on you. Visit homelandinsecuritypodcast.com. Esteban Manzanares joined CBP in 2008, in the middle of the hiring search. Before joining Border Patrol, Manzanares has served with the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. He'd also been a jail guard. Graf reported on him for Political Magazine. He, um, in many ways, came to, for me, epitomize the and personify the these people who should have never been given a badge and a gun by the U.S. government uh, and let loose to terrify the very people that they were supposed to be helping. Manzanares passed a background check, despite some warning signs. He got assigned to a border patrol station in Texas. And for his first six years with the agency, Manzanares didn't raise any major red flags. There were a few complaints against him, but there were so many complaints across CBP at the time that his weren't even investigated. This next story involves sexual violence. If you don't want to hear it, skip ahead a few minutes. One day in 2014, Manzanares was on patrol by himself when he came across a group of Honduran migrants, a mother, her teenage daughter, and a friend. Manzanares locked the women in the back of his Ford Border Patrol truck and then drove around the scrubland outside McAllen for hours. And eventually he stopped and took the women out into a wooded area and he raped both the mother and the daughter. And then he slit the mother's wrists and tried to break the daughter's neck and left them both for dead in the brush. 
Manzanares drove off with the other girl still in the back of his border patrol truck. He took her to a secluded place and handcuffed her to a tree, and they went back to work. After his shift, Manzanares returned and took her back to his place. He raped the woman uh, held hostage in his apartment. In the meantime, the mother and the daughter uh, left for dead had actually survived. They ended up coming across another Border Patrol unit, and they told those agents that someone wearing the same uniform had tried to kill them. Investigators sort of quickly uh, zeroed in on Manzanares uh, because they found duct tape and blood in his patrol truck. And about 1239 that night, FBI agents tried to raid his apartment. And as they pounded on the door, uh, Manzanares actually shot himself. And when the SWAT team broke down the door, they found the woman, the teen, inside, naked and bound to a chair, but alive. A U.S. Border Patrol agent has been found dead in his South Texas home, and the Border Patrol and the FBI suspect he had kidnapped and assaulted three women who were in the U.S. illegally. In its rush to secure the border, government gave a gun and a batch to a rapist, to someone who tried to commit murder. And Manzanares was not the only one. He was the third Border Patrol agent or customs officer in McAllen that year to have been arrested uh, or, or, or charged or suspected uh, of murder or attempted murder. He was a third agent in one year at one CVP location. I can't overstate how terrifying that is. The idea that so many bad apples were roaming around, armed, representing the U.S. government, and trying to kill immigrants. This was more than an integrity problem. It was a culture of accepting violence, one that was magnified by the hiring spree. And Graf says, we're still seeing the effects. Even more recently, I mean, a Border Patrol agent um, in 2018 was arrested as a serial killer for killing prostitutes on the streets of Laredo. And again, he was not even the first Border Patrol agent from his own station charged with murder that year. Like Manzanares, that agent in Laredo also joined CVP in 2008. From inside CVP, James Tomshek could see the growing problems. For years, he pushed for mandatory polygraph tests for all applicants. But CVP leadership didn't sign off on that until 2012. And Tomshek also wanted polygraphs for every agent's five-year review. He thought it would help weed out people who shouldn't be there. But CVP didn't take his advice. When Tomshek told Congress that up to 60% of Border Patrol agents hired during the search probably shouldn't have been, his boss yelled at him. Over time, he got more and more frustrated with a culture of sweeping things under the rug, covering up bad behavior. The last straw came when Tomshek's boss asked him to redefine the term corruption in order to help make the numbers look better for CBP. He refused and instead went to the FBI as a whistleblower. It was the beginning of the end of his career. In 2014, he was reassigned from internal affairs to a job within Border Patrol. 
to a position that did not exist until two days before I was assigned to it, identified as the Director of National Programs. Tomchak could read between the lines. It was an attempt to get him out of the way. Instead, he resigned. But the message it sent was clear. At CVP, if you want to keep your job, keep your mouth shut. If you think about it, there's kind of a dark irony to the hiring search. People like Robert Bonner thought putting more agents on the border would make us safer. It would protect us from terrorists. But I would argue it actually made us less safe. And I'm not the only one. Apparently, the former head of the FBI's criminal division, Ronald Hosko, agrees with me. Gary Graff talked to him about the hiring search. Hosko oversaw all criminal investigations that the FBI did nationwide. And he said to me this sort of stunning statement that he considered the top threat that he faced in that role as the corruption and misconduct within CBP. The guy responsible for investigating street gangs and organized crime and kidnappings, he thought CBP was his biggest problem. And he remembers going to this one meeting at CBP where they were discussing what they sort of euphemistically called CBP's integrity problems. And he stood there uh, as CBP officials batted around numbers about sort of how much of their force uh, shouldn't be part of CBP. I mean, basically how many bad apples they had. And they, they were sort of batting around numbers at, at as high as 20%, one out of every five CBP employees. You know, he was saying, you know, like, look, it, let's say that that number is off by, you know, a factor of two. Um, you know, let's say it's only 10%. Let's say it's only 5%. Um, when you're talking about a force of 45,000 gun-carrying federal agents and officers, even 5 or 10% of your force being bad apples, that should be a five-alarm fire. And here's the thing. Not much has changed. Most of the agents brought on during the hiring search, they're still there. They're still out on the border, targeting immigrants, people just like me. When I look back and try to figure out how immigrants became the enemy, it's hard not to focus on the CBP hiring spree. On a time when DHS lowered its standards and embraced a new culture of corruption and violence. On the next episode, after 9-11, Congress approved holding more immigrants in detention on the theory that there might be terrorists hiding in plain sight. This practice of catch and release has been the government's policy for decades. It is an unwise policy, and we're going to end it. To help end catch and release, we need to increase the capacity in our detention facilities. Private prison companies jumped at the opportunity and began building massive detention facilities all over the country. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Jonathan Ryan and Brian Carmel for Raices. Special thanks to Stephanie May Joyce. And I'm your host, Eric Candiola.
If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.